Turn with me, if you would, to uh, Luke chapter 4. And uh, as you're turning there, um, let me say, if you're new with us this morning, we're delighted to have you. And uh, we would love, uh, I would love for you to come up and meet me this morning so we can put a, a name with a face, etc. And also, I'll get to tell you about sort of the next step at Fellowship. So if you're new, come see me uh, this morning. All right, Luke chapter 4. <clears throat> so this is what we've done. The last five weeks as we've worked our way through the book of Luke, we've seen Jesus identify himself as the promised son of the living God. And starting today, here's what Luke does in these next six weeks. He wants to make sure that what we've identified, how Jesus has identified himself, is now accurate. And so our next six weeks, we're doing this little mini-series called Verified, the Lord and His Authority, to verify his identity. And in doing so, we'll verify his scriptural authority, his spiritual authority, his authority to forgive, his authority to lead, his religious authority, <clears throat> and lastly, his organizational authority. So if he is the promised son of God and we believe that he is, then surely he can prove it to us and leave no doubt. Luke is not afraid to jump into that. The last place we saw Jesus, if you were here last week as I taught, was in the wilderness fighting off ferocious attacks of the devil with temptation. And some have said Jesus was in the frying pan. And this week, as he moves his way to Galilee, we're going to see that he jumps out of the frying pan and into the fire as he goes back to his hometown of Nazareth. Now, this question about who is Jesus and does he have the authority to do and say what he what he does and what he says. Does he have that authority? <clears throat> that was being asked then, and it is being asked now. Just a few years ago, on New Newsweek's front cover, had this question, who is Jesus? They had a quote in there from a so-called expert, an unknown junior college professor, that said a Jesus was a barefoot preacher to the poor, the Jewish equivalent to Stephen Becko, the son of the African anti-apartheid activist. A Jesus seminar expert described Jesus this way. The aim of our seminar is to rescue Jesus from the spin doctors who wrote the Gospels. Thomas Paine, one of the influential people who founded this country and wrote the book, Common Sense in an Age of Reason, he denied Jesus ever existed. <clears throat> when I read that, I thought, really? The New Testament documents are the most reliable documents of the ancient world that we've ever seen. Non-Christian and Christians would say that about the New Testament. First century Jewish historian Josephus wrote, much about Jesus, even though he wasn't a believer in him. Early church fathers like Polycarp actually knew people who knew Jesus. And we could go on and on, but the question about who Jesus, Jesus is and how far his authority goes is still relevant to you and I. Because if we don't get that, then we do not come to this place where Jesus is our Lord. 
the Lord. So, this morning, I want to read the whole narrative of our text. If you have your Bibles, open up. It would be important that you follow because there's a lot going on here in this classic text. Starting with verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Now, he's returning from the wilderness back to the region of Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And all the eyes, all the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me the proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in the truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their own town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So here's the setting, if you would. Take a look at this map of Palestine. Jesus leaves the wilderness. He's been baptized at the Jordan River, which is just below the Sea of Galilee. And in doing so, he's been tempted in the wilderness. And then he really goes to Capernaum, which is north in the region of Galilee. And that would be to your left here, uh, up in the northern part. Galilee is about the size of Rutherford, Wimson, and Davison County put together. It's about 45 miles by 45 miles in terms of size. And as I said, Jesus did ministry in Capernaum for about a year. 
But the, and, and you see in our text, there was this buzz about him that uh, Galilee had about 200 known villages or town at, at the time. And he would stop in each one and teach in the synagogue. And people were shocked. They were, they were astonished. They were like, oh my goodness. So there's this buzz. In some ways, Jesus is becoming a spiritual rock star at the time. But it gets better. Eventually, Jesus, Luke is telling us, makes his way down to the southern part of Galilee, back to his hometown of Nazareth. This sleepy little, as some said, a one-horse town, 10 miles west of the Sea of Galilee, off the beaten path. And in some ways, in a very classic sense, he was a hometown boy done good, a local boy who had made it. And so there was this level of anticipation and excitement, if you would, that Jesus is back home. We, we've been hearing about Jesus's ministry. Jesus has been on the, on the preaching tour and, and, and man, he's, he's in some ways put our little town on the map and now he's back home and he's back in the synagogue and it says, as it was custom, this was normal, He's back in the very synagogue that Sabbath day that he grew up going to his whole life. He's back in his home church, folks. In the Jewish synagogue, they had a worship service, and in those worship services, there was a rhythm, a rhyme and rhythm, just like much in our services, where they would pray. They would sing songs out of the Psalms. They would read a well-known passage out of the Old Testament. And someone would come up typically and read a passage out of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Then they would roll the scroll up and hand it back to the attendant. And then someone would come up and read a passage out of the prophets and roll it back up and hand it to the attendant. And they would stand to read the word of God in its honor, but then they would sit down and exposit the scriptures, particularly from the prophets, and they would sit down to teach. So due to Jesus' growing reputation, he's becoming a rock star. He's back in his home church. Seems to me that they probably had asked Jesus to be the teacher, the expository of scripture that day. So the text tells us the scroll of Isaiah was handed to him and he found, did you see that? He found the text that he wanted to read. It wasn't random. He knew the exact text he wanted to read. This is the very premeditated. He knows exactly what he wants to say. And next we have this drop the mic moment, verses 18 through 21. So what does he do? We see there he reads in our verses 18 and 19, he reads part of Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. And then he reads a line from Isaiah 58, 6, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So he puts these two texts together. And the book of Isaiah, we must remember, was written 700 years before Jesus read it. 700 years before he unrolled the scroll and chose that scripture. He then rolls the scroll back up, hands it to the attendant, sits down to teach. Now, can, if you're me and I'm reading this, there's some tension here. 
There's some drama here. There's some, there's some, he just read that text. Why did he choose that text? All eyes are fixed upon him. What will he say next? What does that text mean? How will he interpret that? What does he have to say? What's a word from God today that explains the meaning of that text for us? And then in verse 21, Jesus says, Today, this scripture that I just read has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, Today, the prophecy that Isaiah spoke 700 years ago has been fulfilled in your hearing. What a drop the mic moment. In that particular text, Jesus says six things about himself to verify himself. Now, the audience might be thinking, did I hear Jesus right? Did he just say what I think he said? And Jesus would say, yes, I am telling you, I am the person who is being talked about when Isaiah uttered the words 700 years ago. All of this is fulfilled in me. God's plan of salvation is being accomplished in me. Notice the first thing. Jesus said about himself. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And we just saw a few chapters ago where the spirit of God came in the form of a dove on Jesus and his baptism. And his father said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus says, that's me. Secondly, he said, I am the anointed one of God. And this is beautiful because anointed, the actual word for anointed in the Old Testament means Messiah. And we know this. Throughout the Old Testament, God was in some ways building this picture of what the Messiah would look like. And he did that through three particular offices. He did that through the prophet, who was a spokesperson between God and man. He did that through the priest, where the priest represented people to God. And he did that through the king. The prophet, priest, and king was this a picture. And here's the deal. The prophet had to be anointed with oil. It was a sign of the Holy Spirit. The priest had to be anointed with oil, Psalm 133. And the king, remember Samuel anointing David with oil. So this anointment of these three offices had this cumulative picture of the Messiah. The prophet, priest, and kings were mediators. The prophet spoke, as I said, to the people on behalf of God. The priest stood as mediators and represented the people to God. And the king took care of people and ruled over people and led people. This is a clear picture that the Messiah would embody all three of this, these offices in one person. So the Messiah in the end would be one who would be anointed prophet, priest, and king. But this anointing is not done by another prophet, priest, and king, but by God himself. And Jesus says here, God has anointed me as the Messiah. The third thing Jesus said about himself 
was he came to proclaim the good news to the poor. And we remember on the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Or another way to put that is blessed are those who are needy. And then the fourth thing was to proclaim liberty to the captives. And what would happen is every 50th year would be called the year of Jubilee. And during that year of Jubilee, all debts are released. So if you're a slave or a servant, an indentured servant, you're released from that role. If you had financial debts, you're released from that. I need a, I need a, I need a year of Jubilee. Anybody need a year of Jubilee? Yeah. But Jesus is saying here, I didn't come to release you from servitude. I didn't come to release your financial debts, but I came as the embodiment of the year of Jubilee to release you from your captivity of sin. And then fifthly, he said, I came for the recovery of sight, a new kind of seeing for blind people to open blind people's eyes to the truth of God. You know, Paul writes, and he sort of tells us what we all are before Christ. He says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers that were all born blind at birth. But now Jesus says, because of me, you will see. And sixthly, he says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which simply means it is a time of mercy and not judgment. So Jesus here, by reading this Old Testament passage, is verifying himself. He is announcing to them, I am the long-awaited Messiah, and I am the culmination and embodiment of every prophet, priest, and king that Israel has ever had. And I am coming, he is saying, to a very particular person. I am coming to a very specific kind of person, to a person who has a great need. Mark 2.17, Jesus made it, I think, very clear. I did not come for those who are well, but for those who are sick. Ironically, but intentionally, Jesus left out. If you would go to Isaiah 61 and you read verses 1 and 2, you would notice there is a line left out very intentionally by Jesus of that passage. And the line reads this, the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus left that out intentionally because his coming the first time was to redeem and to save. And his coming the second time, that prophecy also will come true as he enacts vengeance upon his enemies. So we have this setting. We have this drop the mic moment. Oh my gosh. And now we have this just do it. Moment. This is where Nike started, folks, right here. Verse 22 and 23. So the text tells us the people stood amazed, astonished at what Jesus had said. They marveled at the gracious words that came out of his mouth. And the reason is there was no mention of vengeance here. But don't think this was some sort of surprise to the Jewish people. They were anticipating the coming of the kingdom of God, except what Jesus is saying here is not future tense. 
This is not something to come. This is not in the future. He is saying now, today, referring to himself. Their glorious response at this point to Jesus was the result of a distorted view of the Messiah and what he would do for them. There's a lot of folks who love Jesus until they understand fully what Jesus caused them to. Their expectation was he would deliver them from the Roman rule. And he would do that especially because he was one of them. He was a hometown boy. Not only would he, would he, was he a Jew, but he was from Nazareth. Like he's going to take care of us. And they were certainly amazed. But the text shows us they also had another response, another feeling. They were also a little reluctant to believe what he said. Look at verse 22. Is this not Joseph's son? Wait a minute. He's saying he is the Messiah. But I remember him eating goulash at my house along with my son Adam. See what I did there? That's the anointed one of the Lord? Like, come on, man. Is he not that carpenter's boy? No, he's not that carpenter's boy. He is the son of the living God. And in verse 23, because Jesus is who he says he is, Jesus knows their hearts. We can't fool Jesus. And they couldn't fool Jesus. He knows their hearts, and so he responds this way. He knows what the real issues are, and he knows what is keeping them from fully accepting him and fully accepting who he says he is. It is their own pride, their own spiritual pride. It is their inability to perceive that they really need to acknowledge that they have sinful hearts and admit they too have a need for God to save them. They can't see it and they won't acknowledge it. He knows they are thinking. How dare he imply, as he did by reading Isaiah, that they are poor. How dare he imply that they are slaves. How dare he imply that they are blind and oppressed and downtrodden? How dare he think he can be our savior, less alone that we even need a savior? Verse 23 continues, if he's so great, if Jesus is so great, he better think about saving himself before he thinks about saving us. If he's so great, then why doesn't he do some miracles here in front of us to verify who he is like we've been hearing about he's been doing up in Capernaum for a year. Jesus wants you to do some tricks for us. Won't you, won't you do some magic to show us that you are different and you are the Messiah? Just do it, Jesus. <clears throat> Notice Human nature doesn't change much. <laughs> they were initially impressed with his style. 
our hometown boy, such a good communicator, such a great polished speaker. But when the truth of God started coming out of his mouth, they took offense. And we'll see that this offense turned into rage. I don't know about you, but oh, Lord, how tempting it would be if I were Jesus to prove to them who I was. Lightning bolt in Benjamin's head, right? That's me. But to some of you, are like, really? Yeah, but here's what you would do, you people pleasers. You would just ride the wave of popularity. Hey, did I offend you? Let me change my message. So whichever way you would go, aren't you glad Jesus ain't us? And here's what Jesus does now. I love this. Jesus is still sitting and he's still teaching. And so he goes into story time. (laughs) He's Mr. Rogers. He puts on his little Jewish shawl and said, let me tell you a story. As Jesus is still sitting to teach, He starts and tells these two Old Testament stories, one about a widow named Zarephath in 1 Kings 17 and a Syrian general named Naaman from 2 Kings 5. Now, you got to understand, we need to understand that these would have been very familiar stories, much like we are very familiar with many of these New Testament gospel stories about Jesus. This isn't new to them, but... Now he's using them to illustrate their and confront them with their own pride. Let's skip down to verse 28 before we hit the stories. After he tells this, these stories, he gets a response. A response. And it says, they are filled with wrath. When I, when I was first studying this text, I thought, really? You got a widow, you got a Syrian general, and then the next thing after the stories, they're filled with wrath. Like, did I miss something here? Just a moment ago, everybody loved Jesus. They all marveled at him. They were amazed at the gracious words coming out of his mouth. And a split second later, they are literally furious. What's happened here? Oh, it was that thing about the widow. Yeah, that sort of got under my skin too. Oh, yeah, I I can see. Really? I can't see. You, You see what I'm talking about? Here's what's happened. What Jesus has said has violated them. Not just myth them a little bit, not just tick them off, not just bothered them. They are outraged. Jesus has said something that has cut into their deeply cherished belief about themselves, about their own goodness, about their faith. Jesus has dug up one of their idols of their hearts, and in this case, their own goodness and their own worthiness because they are a Jew, and he has stuck it in their face. 
in all its ugliness. He has taken the very words of God and used it as a mirror to stick in their face and said, this is who you really are. They didn't like that. Now, I I will tell you this. I am not Jesus. I know it's a huge relief. And I'm not, I want to be like Jesus and follow Jesus, but I can identify with Jesus at this point. Many of you have heard my story Wild and crazy growing up, wild and crazy family. Came to Christ at 19. Uh, there was some buzz, like had he joined a cult. Uh, then they found out I had become a Christian. Came back, gave my testimony in my home church, and people loved me. Spoke a few times over the years, and it was a home, homeboy. Jenna was there for some of it. Homeboy done good, right? I remember who you used to be. They were proud of me being a part of Selma Baptist Church. And then I went off to work with Campus Crusade for Christ and worked with af- uh, athletes at Clemson University, majority of them African-American men. And one Sunday I brought a couple African-American men uh, or one white guy and one African-American football player back to our church so he could give his testimony. And I spoke on racial reconciliation from John 4. And the wrath came out. I get what's happening here. Verses 24 through 26. Here are the stories. Then Jesus recalled these two dark times in Israel's history. One was of Ahab and Jezebel when they ruled Galilee and Samaria. And they led the Israelites in the worship of Baal, who was the storm god. And the people of God actually remained silent and participated in that worship of Baal. And there was only one person who stood up to them, and that was Elijah. And so what God did... While people were starving, God sent Elijah to this woman, Zarephath, this widow, this widow woman from Sidon, and he promised that he would provide food for them. And both of them made it through the drought, through the uh, uh, famine, because God provided them food. Now, we got to remember, she was a Gentile, pagan Gentile. She was not an Israelite. She was a foreigner, and she is on... She is the only one that received the mercy of God, not any Israelite widow. So that's one story. The second story, there's a similar pattern here. There were many Israelites that had leprosy and not one of them was cleansed. Only Naaman the Syrian, again, a non-Israelite, a foreigner. So one person lived by the mercy of God, Naaman, and the rest died, the Israelites. These two stories cut them to the quick. And the question is, why? Well, the widow, Jesus is making his point. The widow is fully aware of her desperate need or her absolute poverty as she stood on the edge of death by starvation or her inability to do anything to save herself. God was gracious 
In that text, it says God was gracious to give her food and all that would never run out. Stick that mental picture. Never run out. He would provide for her and never run out, which speaks of eternity in our sense. And then you had Naaman, one of the most dreaded, had one of the most dreaded diseases in the ancient world. Life is being, if you would, eaten away limb by limb. And he goes to the prophet Elijah and he cries for help. Oh, how desperate a man he was. And Jesus was saying to his hometown folks, to these people, only 400 people in this small town of Nazareth, they all knew him. And he is saying to them, the, you Nazarenes were worse, are worse than the Syrian lepers and the Gentile widows. Both, both Zarephath and Naaman saw their need and are in desperate circumstances. And the good and respectable people in this synagogue, you don't see your need, you don't want to be compared to a widow and a leper. And because of that, you will not receive the salvation that I have come to offer. Jesus cuts through their heart with a double-edged sword. He's saying, this is really who you are. And your pride is keeping you from acknowledging your need. The simple point is this. Their racial and religious pride had made them hard to Jesus and ultimately sent them to hell. This is another example. And this is a new lens in some ways. <coughs> I want to encourage you to read the scripture with a lens that's looking for idols. And when you look in your own life and your responses to God's truth... Read your own life with a lens that's looking for idols. And here what we have, you take away a person's idol or you threaten their idol. And in this case, what was their idol? Themselves. Their own goodness. Their own worthiness. Their own statue in their community. Their own thoughts about themselves because they weren't true. People get very, very angry when you threaten or expose their idols. So we got the setting. We got this drop the mic moment. We got this just do it. We got story time. And now we got attempted homicide. Look at verse 29. The same people who literally helped raise this boy <laughs> all his life up until just a year before, had lived in this town, who had been so excited to hear from him, from the man who had put them on the map. Now they grab him, they arise up, they grab him, they take him to the edge of town, and they attempt to throw him off a cliff. They want to murder him. Some have said Jesus is an object here of the lynch law, which said if you show that you are a false prophet, you're breaking the Old Testament law in a very high level, and you can execute someone immediately. And that's what's happening here. 
Jesus had verified himself not as a prophet, but as the prophet. And in doing so, the Israelites did to Jesus what they had done to all the Old Testament prophets, and that's reject him. As they rejected him. So when Jesus says in this text, truly a prophet is not welcome in his own hometown, it is true. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts this in Romans chapter 9, verses 30 through 33. This, this Jewish Gentile, this by works and your own goodness versus by faith in the shed blood of Christ. Here's how Paul words it. He says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in attaining or reaching that law. Why, Paul asks? Because they did not pursue it by faith or trust, but as if it were based on works, as it was based on your own goodness, your own worthiness, even based on your own race. Your race won't save you, Paul's saying here. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, the stumbling stone being Jesus, as it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, that is Jesus himself, and a rock of offense, that is Jesus himself, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's why when we're sharing the gospel with people, and we, we've been learning to do that as I've visited your community groups and spoke on it here in this whole year of Outward with the Mission, when we are asking the questions, these first conversations, and we say, if you were to die tonight and you stood before God and he said, why should I let you into heaven? And if people give you, which they often do with me, and I'm talking about people who've been in church their whole life, much like my mama did when she was 44 and I asked her that question. They give me some kind of works answer. And immediately, red flags need to go up that it's very, very possible, not only very possible, but very probable that this person doesn't know Christ because they are trusting in something in themselves and their behavior. And they are blind to their Need. <clears throat> and then verse 30 is my sort of humorous, humorous way to say, if God don't want you to kill his son, you ain't going to kill him because he gone, <laughs> right? He disappeared. This is the first time in chronological order that we see Jesus hit what I call the star track, switch, beam me up, poof, he's out of here. But it won't be the last time as we go through the Gospels. These people of Nazareth in this Jewish synagogue filled with racial and religious pride in themselves, they wanted a miracle. They just got one. Here's my thought to that. My thought is this. When they tried to grab him, this mob, and throw him over the cliff, and as they threw him, he disappeared. 
My wonder was, did their rage at Jesus turn into incredible fear and terror? Uh-oh. Maybe he was the Messiah. You're talking about not being able to sleep for at least the next few weeks. Because when a man, you have your hands on him and a man disappears right in front of you and he's gone, he ain't like other men. Notice Luke says he went away. Yep. He went away because he had a mission to accomplish. He had a cross to bear. He had humanity to redeem. He needed to conquer evil. He needed to please the Father. As I think about us, that's our same mission. We take people to the cross to redeem humanity. We conquer evil and we please the Father. So, so, so here's two so what's for us this morning. If you're a non-Christian or you're not sure if you're a Christian, meaning, meaning that if I had to answer, ask that question that I just asked, if you stood before God and he asked you, why should you uh, bring yourself? Or, I, thought, I thought somebody came out to get me right there. It took me off course. Um, if you stood before God and he said, why should I let you into heaven? And you would have answered in some ways, some kind of work, something you bring to the table, that's a good sign that you're maybe not. This text is so clear. This text is calling you to place your trust in Christ and Christ alone, that there is nothing good in you and there's everything good in Jesus. And he wants to make the great exchange between your sin and his righteousness and place them in different accounts. That's a call to you this morning. Secondly, if you're a Christian, I want to say this to you carefully this morning because I've said it to myself all week. Don't you dare. Don't you dare think that you are not needy. Yeah, you've trusted in Christ. But the people that Jesus is describing in that text, in Isaiah 61, Isaiah 58, the people he's describing, the poor, the captive, the blind, and the oppressed. There's not a person in this church that that's not true of in some form of fashion. When we come to Christ, he takes care of the penalty of sin. We don't have to pay that price. But what we know, this side of heaven, when he removes the presence of sin, there's this in-between where there is real power of sin in us. And we are as needy today for Jesus to work in the power of sin in us as we were that first day when he removed the penalty of sin for us. Don't think you're not needy. Take a minute, ask the question, so what? 